Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Break, the podcast bringing content to sports fans at a time when we are deprived of live action. My guest today is the second youngest snooker champion of all time and went on to become one of only a handful of Triple Crown winners. I am, of course, talking about the wonderful magician, Sean Murphy. Sean, hello, how are you? I'm good, how are you, Andy? I'm good, very well. How are you enjoying lockdown at the moment? Yeah, I think enjoying's a stretch, isn't it? But um, just we're all in this situation together, aren't we? That's, you know, that's the thing, I think. It's the same for everyone and... Uh, you just got to get through it the best you can and uh, keep watching those updates and staying safe, like trying to stay out of everyone's way. Well, listen, I'll ask you the question I'm asking all the other snooker players I'm lucky enough to talk to. How are you practising? Are you practising? What are you doing with snooker at the moment? No, I haven't hit a ball since um, probably getting on for a month or so now since wow. the, the Tour Champs where I was practising there. Um, I just got into the... Just got getting ready for my game there against Mark Allen, got the call to say the tournament was postponed and I haven't hit a ball since. I've no access to a table here. I don't have a table um, at home anymore like we did in the UK. I play at the Stevens Green Club in Dublin, city centre. And so, uh, like, even if I wanted to go in, the place is closed. Um, but sure, we've, we've got nothing to practice for anyway. So it's, uh, it's a very, very strange time, isn't it, for all of us? Very, very strange times. Does that worry you that you haven't hit a ball for four weeks and it's going to be longer? What's the longest you've gone previously without playing snooker? Yeah, no, I'm not sure, but this will be this will be it. I would say when when we do eventually come out of this um, period, it, you know, this will be the longest. It reminds me of the old days when you used to have like nearly three months off after the World Champs. You know, when we only had six, seven tournaments, and uh, you know, you'd come away from your summer break, and those first couple of days practicing in the club were quite funny. Like you could lose to anyone. Um, and miss anything. So I'm sure it'll be a bit like that. But uh, hopefully um, it won't take too long to get back into the swing of things. No. Well, listen, I've got you for half an hour. We're going to talk about all your career and all your ups and downs. And of course, that time you became world champion, the second youngest one ever. But before we, we talk about your career as a professional, I want to talk about you as a kid growing up. Were you always going to be a snooker player? Did you always have that talent as a young kid? Uh, I mean, I took to it straight away. Like I had no interest in it whatsoever and you know until Santa brought me a table like you know I didn't have any uh we didn't know what the game was until I saw the table um but once once I once I connected with it once I sort of started understanding it then it just took over mine and yeah everyone in the family's life you know it became the that was it and uh, it was practice every day it was the club each night after school um all sorts it just became the 
that was what our life was about, like, you know. What age are you talking? And also, did you excel straight away? Were you a natural or did you have to work at it? Uh, there's a, there's a, as I say, I got the table for Christmas, a little six footer. There's a picture somewhere in my mum's scrapbook from the Boxing Day the day after. Um, where I actually look like a little snooker player and I've obviously been playing a day, you know, my elbow was in the right place and my bridge was in the right place and you just think like, what was that about? But um, I think it uh, wasn't that long after that I made a 50-something break on that little table and apparently my dad went downstairs and said to my mum like, this is weird, you know, that's, 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 that's not normal, that. And then we very quickly progressed on to sort of proper full-size tables um, I heard that Ronnie had, had made a, his first century when he was 10. And I said, right, I'd love to try and do that myself. And two weeks after turning 10, I made a one, two, seven against him in the club. Wow. Um, just peering over the edge of the table, like, you know, but um, I think that was probably why I turned out to be a decent rest player. You know, when I was that age, you know, every other shot was with the rest. And as a kid growing up, who were your heroes in the snooker world? Yeah. I mean, I watched everything. Like, if, if, if I could find a, if I could find a TV free or a videos at car boot sales or whatever it was, um, you know, I watched it all. But I think out of them all, you know, Davis was the one who I sort of looked to as my, yeah, I'd love to, if I could do a, you know, a tenth of what you've achieved, I'd consider that to be, you know, a good career. Like, you know. Away from Stuka just for a moment, but still sticking with you as a kid, you had quite a difficult upbringing, didn't you? What was mm. home life like for you growing up? Yeah, it was tough. Um, I think there's a big misconception that I come from a, you know, very well-to-do, sort of well-off background and had everything my own way, you know, all my, and that's completely wrong. You know, my, my parents did separate in my mid-teens, but before that, you know, we'd gone through some turbulent times as a family financially. Um, you know, life from being sort of eight years of age was um, car boot sales on a Sunday, auction things on a Thursday, trying to nick a few quid here or there. I was playing in snooker tournaments and we were using that cash to, you know, trying to just keep everything afloat. Things were very, very difficult for us um, as a family. But, you know, the, the sort of me, my mum and my dad, even though I was a child, you know, we were all in it together, really. And um, later on, you know, we, we sort of progressed. Uh, we got out of that sort of mess, if you like. And um, the, 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 the big change for us came when I was 12. And Doc Martins, who were a local company, they were based, obviously a worldwide company, but they were based in the town next to where I lived. They supported a lot of local sports people uh, and Rushton Diamonds Football Club. And um, they said, oh, we, you know, we'd really like to try and support you. And But for their support, which lasted three or four years, I just wouldn't be sat here talking to you today. You know, there was lots of help along the way hour after hour in clubs and traveling the country. But if it hadn't have been for Max Griggs, who was the sort of patriarch of that company, if he hadn't have stepped in and said, we'd like to help, just wouldn't be sat here. Wouldn't have happened. So did you see snooker as a bit of an escape for you from your home life? Yeah, without question. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, when, when we got to the club, um, everything or what everything else in the, in, in life sort of, fell away and any troubles we had, any difficulties we had, they just vanished and they were replaced with snooker trouble. <laughs> like, you know, why couldn't I make it, you know, why putting the white in the right play and all of that stuff? But it was definitely escapism. And 
you know, while I was sat in school, I would be sat there imagining breaks and looking at the board and working out how I could pop that word into that pocket and all this. You know, I just had no interest at school. And that was obviously then shown. I left school at 13. I never went back after year nine. I, that, that was me. I, that was me done. So when you left school, were you always going to be a snooker player? Because I've, I've spoken to you many times about this. You told me a great story about how, and we'll get to the World Championship in a minute, but how that was basically your your last chance saloon, if you like. If you didn't qualify, you were going to give up snooker and go down a different avenue. But when you left school at that tender age, were you, at that moment, were you always going to be a snooker player? Or did you have other ideas of where you were going to end up? That was it. There was no safety net. There was no second ideas. There was. I actually remember... What do they call it now? Where uh, like a careers officer comes into school, and you have that day where you go to the you know someone's office, and you know they say, "Now, what would you like to be when you leave school? How do you see this planning with your GCSEs and this, that, and this, that, and the other?" And I just looked at this woman and I said, "No, I'm going to be a snooker player." And she said, "Yeah, but I, I know that. But you know, what about this?" That and I said, "No, no, I, you don't understand." I said, I'm, "I'm all I'm interested in doing is being a snooker." Anyway, she called for the the head of PE was a guy called Mister Perkins. And he, he and I got on really well. And, and she said, listen, I'm having a bit of trouble with this one. Like, you know, I can't get through to him. And he said, yeah, you know, he's all he's interested in is snooker. We've tried to sell him as well. And, uh, and that was that. And I actually saw this guy, Mr. Perkins, just a few months after winning the Worlds in 05. And we met in the pub and we had a few beers. It was good times. I had the same conversation with my careers advisor, genuinely. I said snooker player. And uh, they laughed at me like they laughed at you. But look at me now. I'm always there on finals day. <laughs> You're more consistent than me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so listen, when, when you turned pro, how old were you? What was your what was your game like as an amateur? Were you a top amateur? Was it was it just a matter of time before you turned pro then? Yeah, my amateur career was a funny one because it, it didn't really happen. I, I played on the juniors. I was in, the, you know, any any junior event or any prime event that was happening, I was in it. Um, and then when I was 15, I turned pro. And uh, I actually, I think, I think what WPBSA have made two exceptions for people in the past because they, you were supposed to be 16. I think myself and Ronnie have had that dispensation given to us. And I, I actually have never got to the, the bottom of how and why that was given because because of tobacco sponsorship, you had to be 16 to be on the tour. Yeah. And um, never actually got to the bottom of why I was allowed on the tour before I was 16. I remember celebrating my 16th birthday at Plymouth Pavilions and all the ushers have got me a cake and uh, it was just before or just after a game, like, you know, so I, I remember that. But um, I don't really know why I was allowed to get through that. You know, it certainly wasn't anything. I, I didn't have anything mm. to do with it. We applied to be allowed to join the tour and that was that. Not really sure. And things didn't go too smoothly for you to begin with. You turned pro in 98, but am I right in saying you fell off the tour to begin with? I did. I had a year on the tour and, and dropped straight off. And it didn't help in fairness to me that um, the WP, they changed the qualifying criteria for the following season halfway through that year. Um, and it went from something like, you know, the top 196 will retain their tour place uh, to I think it was the top 106 or 96. So basically, like there was 100 of us who were in um, and then all of a sudden we weren't. It was just kind of, you know, get on with it, like. And um, yeah, there was there was almost no way once they made that choice that myself and, as I say, the other lads could possibly stay on the tour. It was almost mathematically impossible unless you won an event or something, which, you know, I didn't. And um, yeah, I dropped back to what was called the UK tour, which would now be like a challenge tour. I dropped back to that for two or three seasons. It was very difficult watching all the lads that I'd 
played with as a young junior, as a you know, a young kid. A lot of them got through and turned pro the year after you, Mark Selvage, Stephen Maguire's, Ryan Day. They, they sort of sailed off into the distance and I was left there on the challenge door going, what? how's this? How's this? And how have I ended up here? Like, you know. And you, you obviously had doubts about whether or not you're going to make it to the very top because, you know, you turn pro at a very young age, you then fall off the tour. And then when you come back on, as I mentioned at the top of our chat, it's a great story and I'm going to ask you to tell it now about how you thought, you know, qualifying for the World Championships in the year you ironically went on to win it in 2005. You thought, right, if it doesn't happen now, I need a complete career change. I think it, I think it all stems back to this story, um, stems back to just how I was brought up and, and, and sort of, that's why I don't like the word consistency that much is because I was tr- trained and taught to only try to win. And if you didn't win, it was failure. Now, I, as a parent myself now, I get that that's a bit, that's a bit black and white and the world doesn't work like that. But that's how I was taught. And when I did eventually get back on the tour in 2001, something like that, I spent the next three or four years waiting for my sort of, when's the win going to come? Like, you know, and not only did it not come, I found it hard to climb the rankings. I wasn't really climbing. Of course, the rankings were different back then. You went up in groups of 16 once a year. So it was quite hard to make any progress. Now, the, the, the season we're talking about, you know, four or five, I was working with Steve Prest, who's sadly no longer with us. And we were working so hard, you know, three, four times a week, driving hundreds of miles to see each other, practicing for 10, 11 hours a day. And, and we were going to all the matches in the qualifiers. And just not getting anywhere. And I had a really bad beat in the China Open qualifier. I think to, it was, I can never remember. It was either Rob Milkins or it was Gerard Green. I, and I can't remember which who it was. And at four each, I had whoever the player was snookered on three reds. And I was sort of 45 ahead or something. And whoever it was, fluked a red and dished. And on the way home, I said to Steve, that's it. I'm, I'm done. Like, I can't do this anymore. And we didn't speak all the way home. And later that night, I confirmed it. I said to him, that's, you know, I'm finished with this game. I'm just not, it hasn't worked out. Tried my best, really tried, did everything that was asked of me. Left school, uh, practiced hard every single day, you know, sacrificed a lot of friendships, this, that and the other, moved across the country. But it just hasn't worked. It doesn't work for everyone. And it hasn't worked for me. And he said, well, listen, you've paid your entry fee, enter the tournament, play it, don't waste the 700 quid and see what happens. And I wasn't for it. I was like, nah, Steve, no, nah, I'm not, I'm not bothering. And I actually went to the Mercedes dealership in Sheffield where I lived at the time and, and went and got a job. And the, the MD of the place was like, well, listen, you know, play this, do this snooker thing. And as and when it doesn't work. As what? A car salesman? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I know. Right. Yeah. I know. And he was like, you know, um, well, you've got the job. Uh, I think you'd be good at the job, blah, blah, blah. I know you're keen on this snooker rubbish. I think that's what you, you know, get yeah. this snooker out of the way. You know, we'll see, we'll see, just see, see you when we see you, like, you know, if you come and come in, sort of start after the world champs. Steve then convinced me even more to play and I practiced and this, that, and the other. And I did win the two qualifiers and then found myself at the Crucible. And of course, the rest is history, like. Have you gone back to the Mercedes, Gary, you told him you're not going to be working there? I should really ring that fella. You should. You, he's probably still waiting there going, oh, this Murphy fella, where, where is he? It's a bit late. Hang on a minute. Yeah, no, I know. I think uh, I actually did buy my first car from there. So oh, okay. it all worked out. It right. all worked out. You sold it to yourself, did you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brought 
great day. I got an amazing deal. I yeah, I bet you got good commission as well for that. Um, I want to I want to talk about you becoming world champion. You know, great run beating Matthew Stevens in the final. But along the way, you beat your idol Steve Davis and John Higgins as well. So it's quite a real tough route to the final. What are your memories of those seventeen days in Sheffield? Although I'd won my two qualifiers and and and, and that was out of the way, the, the 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 fact that this was going to be my last ever tournament as a professional was still you know looming large in in the mirror. Yeah. And um, the fact that I'd qualified for Sheffield wasn't wasn't over. Um, and I just sort of I played Chris Small in the first round. That was the first match I'd ever won at the Crucible Theatre. So that was a that was a big feather in my cap. Um, but I then had to play Higgins in the second round and just expected to lose because. I'd always lost to John Higgins. He was the one who kept, every time I got to a personal best, he slapped me down. And just a few months before, he'd beaten me 6-0 in the semis of the British Open. So I didn't hold out much hope to beat him over 25 frames at the Crucible Theatre. And when I did beat him, I think I beat him 13-9, that kind of was a bit of a wake-up call and a bit of a, well, there's now only eight players left. You know, let's not give up. Let's let's see what we can do here. At that stage, when you're beating John Higgins, are you still going to be a car salesman, or is that gone now? It was starting to go. I had this kind of marker that if I got to the semi-finals that year, I could get into it. I think it was the top 32. Right. And as I say, the rankings only changed once a season back then. So it was kind of a you know, if you do win another two games, suddenly the season becomes a success, and you've you know, I had achieved my goal, which was to get in the 32 at the end of the year. But I still wasn't really thinking about it. Mainly because, like, with respect to Steve, I did expect to beat Steve uh, and did. But then, uh, you know, you, I only had to look a couple of names further in the draw and I could see that waiting for me in the semi-finals was probably going to be Ronnie O'Sullivan. And, you know, that was going to be very, very difficult to get past him at that stage of my career, as clueless as I was back then, um, which is only a little bit less clueless than I am currently. <laughs> But I was even more clueless back then. And uh, obviously he is and was, you know, the biggest name in the game. So that was going to be tough. Of course, nobody banked on Peter Ebden beating O'Sullivan in that famous, probably infamous quarterfinal. Um, And there's no doubt I would much rather have played Peter than Ronnie. And then, of course, you went on to become world champion at the age of 22. Is that the pinnacle of your career for obvious reasons? But does it get any better than that, or is that it? Do you know, it's it's such a strange one because, like, I follow a lot of other sports, tennis and golf mainly, and you, you see these young lads that come on the tour and they win a couple of sort of small events, then a sort of main tourish event, and then they might flick a major in at some stage of their career. I kind of did that the wrong way around, if you like, and um, it's not the way you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to you know, build your career steadily and peak. A bit like Judd has, you know, Judd sort mm. of did it the correct traditional way. Um, of course, I remember playing Judd on his debut at the Crucible Theatre and, um, you know, sort of remember that quite fondly. And certainly with, you look at where his career has now gone, to have been there at the start was quite special. But like, if I'm being completely honest, I think winning the Masters in 15 and completing that Triple Crown set was a bigger moment for me. Wow. Because... I understand and understood what it meant. Whereas at 22, winning the world, didn't have a clue what I was doing. I didn't understand how big a deal it was. I did know that I was, if I won, I'd be the second youngest. But I think when you're young, you don't really, you don't really think about stuff. You know, you don't really, you're not really taking on board that information. 
let everyone else talk about it. And I just sort of carried on potting the balls and going for mental shots. Uh, and and <laughs> luckily for me, they all went in that, for that fortnight. But yeah, I didn't really think about it. Um, that's why I've said I'd always love the, I'd love to win it again to try and sort of savour it a bit more. Now, as a, obviously, as an adult and everything that goes with that, because at 22, I didn't really, you know, I didn't really savour it much. I don't remember mm. much of it. Sure, when you became world champion, what was it like the following season? Because, of course, it's something that you've never experienced. You're being announced into every match as champion of the world and everyone wants to play you and everyone wants to beat you as well. And on top of that, you've become a household name. How did you deal with all of that? Yeah, probably pretty badly looking back at it. I certainly didn't, uh, I certainly didn't you know, do what uh, Judd's done this season following his world championship win and consolidate and move forward. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I I didn't win anything the following season. I think I got to one final, lost to Stephen Lee in the Welsh Open, um, and you know, just just kind of got caught up in golf days appearances. I think I went on comic relief. You know, all this type of stuff. Did you think you'd done it? Yeah, I think I think I think so. I think certainly where I come from, the village I grew up in, Earthlingborough in Northamptonshire. You know. Things like that just don't happen to people from those types of places. It just doesn't happen. It's mm. things we read about. It's things we saw on TV. These people were on the news. It didn't happen to us. And didn't really know how to handle any of it. Like, you know, didn't really know uh, what invite to say yes to and to turn down to managers, agents, sharks, who's trying to take you, who wants to actually look after you. You know, how much should you be paying a manager? How much percentage of this? That Should you be sponsored by this company? Uh, you know, all of this type of stuff. And meanwhile, all of those things are distracting you from what you're actually good at, the only thing you're good at, as it happened. And, you know, that that sort of tells in your results. I'd love to get in a time machine and go back to that year and have a quiet word with myself and just say, listen, uh, leave all that stuff there. It'll all take care of itself. You go back to the snooker club and practice and, and, give, and try to win as many of these tournaments as you can. That would That would have been a... I wish someone had given me that sort of talk, like, mm. you know, but uh, they didn't. And um, unfortunately, you know, for me, that's that's just the way that was. We'll talk about, you mentioned just before the break about when you became Masters champion in uh, 2015 and that sort of completed the Triple Crown. We'll talk about that in a minute because, of course, there's lots of highs in your career. But I want to talk about possibly a, a few lows. Um, you got to two other world finals. In 2009, you got beat against John Higgins 18-9 quite convincingly. And in 2015... You lost to um, your good pal Stuart Bingham, eighteen uh, fifteen. Tell me a bit about both of those finals. Which one was harder to take than the other, and which one do you think you perhaps maybe had more of a chance to become world champion for the second time in? It's funny because I remember them both quite differently. I mean, obviously, I got closer to winning in fifteen. Um, I think Stuart and I were fifteen all or something at one stage before he pulled away to the victory. Um, but I think I look back with not re- regrets, probably the wrong word. I look probably with more disappointment at the 09 loss to John because I didn't really feature in the match. Um, I think we were four each after the first session. And from then on, I allowed him to run off into the distance. And, and he exposed the weaknesses in my you know, safety game and defensive game and just completely dismantled me. And I think I look back at that and go, yeah, just ran out of steam there and just wasn't clever enough to compete with somebody at that level. The 15 final, I think, I, I think out of the 33 frames that were played, there was like 
29 or 30 breaks over 50 or 60. It was a very high standard match. And like, you know, I shook his hand and was genuinely pleased for him. You know, yeah. it, it was a great match of snooker. Uh, that- and I don't really look back at that with any regrets. I'm more disappointed about the 09 final because, as I say, these, these opportunities to win that tournament don't come round all the time. Mm. Uh, and I didn't really take part in that game. It's surprising me you say it because as a snooker fan myself, when you got to the final in 2015 against Bingham, the Stuart Bingham you were playing in that final isn't the Bingham that we know and love now. Of course, he'd never been world champion, never been a ranking event winner. He was a totally different player. I had you as odds-on favourite, like by miles to win that. And I was, at the time, I wouldn't say it was one of the, for me, one of the biggest upsets in snooker final history, in world final history, but I was really stunned that you lost it. And I'm quite surprised that it didn't hit you as hard as I thought it would have done, actually. I mean, don't get me wrong. I was disappointed, and and I and I was, you know, disappointed to lose. You that that match is is the biggest match of your life uh, if you're lucky enough to be involved in it. Uh, and and I've been in three of them. <laughs> and don't please don't take what I'm saying as as our, you know, it's just water off a duck's back because I was desperately, desperately disappointed to lose it. Um, and and probably yeah, probably was favourite to win it. If you know if if there is such a thing, sport isn't played on paper, and 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 Stewart. No played unbelievably well all the way through that tournament. I think he beat Robbie Williams, Graham Dart, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Judd Trump and myself. I mean, Jesus, he, he fully deserved he it. He deserved it. Yeah, he <laughs> probably did. Um, you, you talked about what was the most important moment in your career and I thought it was going to be when you became champion of the world. But you said that it was when you became Masters champion in 2015. You absolutely tonked Neil Robertson in the final 10-2. But that, of course, meant you became, I think, one of only 10 players at the time to be a triple crown winner. Mm. And you were old enough to understand and appreciate it a bit more. Mm. So just tell us a bit more about that feeling. Because um, I think even if you hadn't won the UK and the world before it, as a snooker fan, to become Masters champion is is up there with, of course, one of the best accolades you can ever achieve. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's big news in our sport. Uh, and probably just in sport in general. But I think living with that, the monkey on my shoulder of, you, well, you've won two of the three triple crowns. That's the one you need. You know, a bit like Rory McIlroy now. He needs the Masters to, to complete the set. And he has to, every single year, turn up to Augusta with that pressure. This is the one I need. You know, I'd gone to the Masters for seven years with that pressure on my shoulder of, this is the one I need to win. It's not peak. It's not just playing well and trying to win a trophy every now and again. This is the tournament. And it's very, very hard to peak for a specific event. Um, but somehow, by hook or by crook, you know, off the back of nothing, I think the previous event I'd lost in the UK Championships early. You know, I don't think I'd showed any form really going into that tournament. Mm. But, but, but all the stars aligned that week. And, um, you know, I gave everything I had in the final. It was only a few years before I'd lost to Neil um, in the final there itself anyway. So I knew exactly how hard that was going to be. And I suppose that only added to the pressure, really, because I'd been to the final and squandered the chance to to complete the set three or four years prior to that. So, um, you know, that added to it. But I think, uh, so pleased, I think it was Elaine's first time to a tournament that week. It was also, weirdly, it was also my mother's first time watching me play live um, after all those years. And I think I said during the presentation, like, you know, it isn't like this every week. <laughs> and so I've been proven to be right, you know, this... The highs and the highs and lows of sport are just incredible. I think snooker probably is on its own with that. 
Do you get um do you get a replica when you win the UK, the World Championship, the Masters, all the other ones? Do you keep your trophies? Where are they all? Yeah, I, I've I've had got some replicas and they're in the club. They're on display for all the members to see in the Stevens Green Club there. And uh, I have to say, there's a very strong snooker family there, and they're very proud of it and they love it. And they get taken out and polished every now and again. And it's nice for them to be on display. It's uh, it, not in a narcissistic way. It's just uh, it's uh, it's lovely to look back on every time I see them. Mm. Um, they're outside my practice room. Every time I see them, you're reminded of those great moments and. That spurs you on to try to, you know, prepare well for the next event, like, you know, without trying to sound too, you know, uh, robotic about it. It, it, it. it is really good to have them there and they're important things to have, I think. Uh, another great event you have was in 2017, the champion of the champions to beat O'Sullivan in the final 10-8. What did that mean to win such a big competition and be an inform O'Sullivan in the final as well? Yeah, I think um, I look back at that as a, as, a, as a real top moment in my career because, you know, I played well in the whole tournament, uh, not just the final, but I played well across that. And of course, that's an event that you have to win your place in. You know, no one gets given a place in that. So it was a it was a really good win. I think looking back at the final, um, I think when I got to sort of only needing one more frame, Ronnie seemed to just go on and he just seemed to go on a mission, and everything he looked at went in for about forty five minutes to an hour. Uh, and before I knew where I was, I was sat in my chair thinking. Geez, like, you know, if he wins one more frame, we're into a decider. How have we ended up here? Because I think I was 9-4 ahead at one stage or something like that. Yeah. And uh, he just played snooker from the gods for about, as I say, an hour. And in the end, I think the overriding feeling was relief because I got a chance to steal the frame and, and took it and, uh, you know, managed to take the trophy. But, yeah, it was, it, you know, but for a shot here or there, it was a deciding frame and who knows. We'll talk about this season in just a moment. You had a really good season, actually. You won uh, in China, you won the Welsh Open as well, got to another final, which we'll talk about in a moment. But going back to the 2017 Champion Champion, so you've won that, you've played really well, you've beaten an Informo Sullivan, and then you had this sort of barren period for a couple of years. Why Why is that? What, what do you put that down to? Yeah, it's funny. I, I think I've, you know, I probably set my standards quite high, and for me, it's about winning. I think that season where I won the Champion of Champions, I think I got to five finals that season. And people talk about it as a barren period. But but I suppose that's, a, you know, a, a, probably a backhanded compliment, really. Uh, you know, uh, ultimately, there are a lot of players who would they give their back teeth for a season like that. Um, but as I say, going back to how I was brought up as a child, you know, it wasn't about finishing second and, you know, the runners-up medal and uh, uh, didn't you have a great week? That just wasn't how, the way I was taught. And um, I've always said I would swap that consistency. I'd love to delete that word from the dictionary um, and just just take the trophies. So this season, uh, having won two ranking events in a season for me is quite big. That's quite a big development for me. Now, for a lot of players, that's mm. standard. Um, but for me, that's been quite a thing because uh, the nine ranking events that I've won in my career have, have spanned my, you know, my career. Whereas... You see people like your Judd Trumps and O'Sullivan's, Hendry's, Selby's, you, you know, Roberts. They're, win, they're winning multiple events per season. And, um, you know, just for the first in my, time in my life, it was quite nice to step into that circle with them. Yeah, let me ask you then, because, of course, you know, you have had a good season so far. You've not long got married um, to Elaine. You've moved to Ireland. You've got two wonderful children. Ha- has all that lifestyle, has it maybe changed how you're playing on the table, has it maybe changed how you approach the game? 
I think it's I think it's changed in a lot of ways. I think I'm a lot better at dealing with defeats now than I ever was. I think because you come home to a family, and certainly with the two young kids, they don't allow you the 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 freedom of of sulking and moping around for a few days. You're not allowed to do that. So it's you know by the time I make the journey home and and, and I'm here, um, drop the bags at the door and turn the key in the door, then you've got to be you know fun daddy. Um, so I think that's kind of helped me a bit with that. Um, and then again, you know, on the flip side of that coin, it spurred me on to, you know, I'd really love to be in a position to try and give these kids things that I didn't have and, 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 and a life that, you know, wasn't afforded to me. Um, and that means, that means me going to work and potting more balls than the other guys. So it spurred mm-hmm. me on to get out and get practicing even harder as everyone back working with Chris Henry now for the, a good year or so. And we're really trying to, you know, get back to where we were in 15, where we felt we were playing as good as anyone and try and get back there and, and go past if we can. Are you, are you back to form now? And the reason I say that is, of course, because uh, we were there, Eurosport was there when you became Welsh Open champion not too long ago this season. You beat Kyron Wilson 9-1 in the final. How do you rate that performance? Because it was breathtaking from start to finish where I was sitting. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's up there. It's definitely up there. Um, you know, to beat someone of his class, um, by that scoreline, I think I even stole a couple of frames from needing snookers, which like that never happens. Yeah. Now, who am I? Like, you know, that was weird. But yeah, I think I played well that week and certainly played well in the final after a grueling semi-final that nearly went wrong the night before. It was up till one in the morning. Yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, I know. Yeah, it was it was horrific. He had a birthday, didn't he, Bingtown? Yeah, I said after the game, I said, uh, I don't think the match was a long game, but he did have a birthday halfway through it. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was horrendous, that match. But listen, that's the way it goes sometimes. And you see the next day he came back fresher and, 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 and played to a much higher level. I think that's just the way, that's what we love about snooker. It can change from day to day, you know. And of course, the season has obviously been cut short with what's going on in the world. I'm curious, in a minute we're going to do top 10. So I've got 10 questions for you. But I'm, I'm curious if you like this is number 11. If you had the choice between playing the World Championship later on in the year, but not at the Crucible, or not playing it at all because it can't be at the Crucible, what would you choose? I think the World Championships has to be played. Where it gets played, I think, is an irrelevance at this point. I think we're wow, at okay. a stage where I think the players on the 64 bubble who are fighting for their tour cards, I think they deserve the right to, you know, that they got their tour card based on a two-year ranking system that incorporates, you know, the China Open uh, and the World Championships, neither of which have happened yet. Um, and I think uh, they deserve that right to have that tournament to play for their tour spot. You know, I, I think this this season has to be finished before we can start talking about next season. As I say, we're talking about livelihoods and it's very easy to just think the World Championships is only about the 32 players who are at the Crucible and the, the handful of players who have a chance of winning it. Unfortunately, that tournament is about a lot more than just those few players. And as I say, those players who are 64 and below who are fighting for their position on the tour, for their opportunity to call themselves a professional player, that's more important and they mm. deserve the chance to play that event. Uh, we finish, as we do with every one of my guests, with a quick top 10, a quick fire. You can answer in one or two words or elaborate as much as you want. So question number one, who's the best player you've ever played against? Uh, easily Ronnie O'Sullivan. Question number two, a player you wish you could have played against, but you never got the chance. Davis was my idol. I would have loved to have played Davis at his absolute peak 
when he was in his pomp in the 80s when he was winning everything, just to see how good he was. I heard he was decent. He was okay, but the level of opponents back in the 80s was appalling. I think I would have got in the top 16. <laughs> Not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe 32 then. Uh, what's the best match you've ever played in? Yeah, grief. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, it's a tough one. I, I think I think even though I, I came second in it, I actually think the 2015 World Final was one of the best matches I've ever been a part of. I think the standard and entertainment, the show that we put on for everyone um, as, the, as the blue ribbon match of the sport um, is and was one of the best games I've ever been involved in. Uh, for me, it was just a shame I you know, lost, mm. but... It was still a great game. The best snooker venue for atmosphere is where? The Crucible Theatre, by a mile. I'm getting a lot of different answers from players. A couple of people said Germany. I'm getting um, goffs I got from Ronnie O'Sullivan. So it's interesting yeah. that everyone's got different views was, on that. I was, yeah, I think I was, I was, I just missed goffs I think the Irish Masters uh, was canned the year before or just as I got on the tour or something. Um, never actually played there. It's ironic. It's only 20 minutes up the road from where I live now. Get a table in there. You can have a bit of a practice. There's no one about. <laughs> um, next question. Your best ever performance at any level would be what? I mean, I talk about the work, the, the winning the, the Masters, in, you know, in 15, just as a, just as a, you know, put that, put that marker point there. But I actually remember a match. Uh, it was in the Welsh Open against Jamie Cope. I think I had four centuries in five frames. And, you know, that doesn't, that type of thing doesn't come along very often. I remember it being on one of the back tables, three or four, very few people watching. Uh, and I remember, I think I missed on sort of 80 or 90 for five tons on the spin. Wow. Which was, you know, a bit silly, really. That is amazing. Uh, how many queues have you had and which is your best one? Uh, I had a queue um, when I was, there was a local queue maker called Mac Chambers uh, and he cut me down a queue to size when I was nine or 10. And he said to, he said to me, when you make your first hundred break, I'll make you a proper queue for free, uh, which he did. So I found that was two. And then I had a queue. I had worked on to that queue by another queue maker called Rodney Hind, who was in the North Ants area. He was a, a magician with queues. And we borrowed a, an old Tom Newman billiard queue from his collection. So I could still hit some balls whilst this work was being done. Of course, the first shot I hit with that Tom Newman borrowed queue I uh, made 143 break. Oh, my God. So I never went back to the old queue. And I had that queue until about six or seven years ago. And I just noticed it was about 100 years old. Ray Reardon had used it at some point in his career. Oh. It had quite a good pedigree, that queue. And I just thought before that queue damages itself anymore, I put it to one side and swapped. And uh, John Paris made me a handful of queues. And I chose the one that I'm playing with now. So what's that for? I think that's four. And out of those four, have you got them all still? I gave one to my brother. I gave one of them to a guy who helped me throughout my career. Uh, you know, used to come to all the events when my dad couldn't. Uh, he's got the queue that I won the world championship with. And obviously the queue wow. that I use is uh, behind me here yeah. under a table, gathering dust as we speak. <laughs> yeah, not for much longer, I hope. Uh, who's your <laughs> toughest ever opponent? I think the toughest opponent uh, would probably be John Higgins, I think. As I say, I had such a torrid time with him in my early career. Every personal best I got to, he slapped me down like I was just a nobody. And then when I got that win against him in the World Championships in 05, that was a big, big moment for me. And just any match with him, you've got to scrape him off the table. You know, he just gives absolutely everything he's got. And if you're not on your best game, you lose. Uh, three questions left. So question number eight, if you could change one thing in snooker, what would it be? 
If I could change one thing in snooker, it would be a, a sort of a mixture of the misrule and then ball in hand. I think we've got to a stage now where too many players are playing that deliberate miss on a thin safety shot and they're actually playing to miss the ball because hitting them, hitting the ball too thick is too risky. I think we've moved the game into a stage now where we're actually enabling players to bend those rules and play to miss the shot, which, you know, for me sort of rubs me up the wrong way a little bit. I'd like to see a situation where any foul, a bit like the shootout, you can pick the white up and put it anywhere you like. Wow. I mean, that changes snooker forever, doesn't it? That'd be incredible. I think that would be great. I have to say, I think it would be better, better entertainment. It would put more pressure on those safety shots. Um, as I say, it's just I just don't like we've ended up in a situation. I understand why the misrule was brought in because uh, people were missing balls on purpose. But we've now ended up on a situation where we're back there now. Players are missing those shots on purpose, mm. um, knowing they've got three attempts to hit the ball on. And it's just given everyone an opportunity to, just in my personal opinion, bend the rule a bit too much. Uh, question number nine, what's your biggest regret in snooker? Gee whiz, uh, I think my biggest regret in snooker is probably the year I was world champion and not just knuckling down and having the knowledge and experience to forget everything else um, and just to you know, focus on what got me there in the first place, practice as hard as I could, not do all of those sort of appearances and golf events that I did. I loved them all, I had a great time, but it really showed in my snooker and I think looking back, I wished I wish I'd just knuckled down and given everything I had to the game. And the last question, one thing you'd still like to achieve in your career would be what, Sean? Well, when I was a kid, um, you know, I set myself three goals. One was to be world champion. One was to own a Mercedes Benz. And one was to be world number one. And uh, I've achieved two of those things. I've never actually been number one in the rankings. Bearing in mind how far uh, everyone else is ahead of, you know, Selby was miles ahead. He got caught. Mm. And now Trump's just like sailed off into the distance. Um, it would be a real feat to catch them. But that was a that was a goal I set when I was 10 years of age. And it's still something that I'm trying to achieve now. I, I like even at the age of 10, you still had something in your mind to do with the Mercedes car. I quite like that. <laughs> Yeah. Listen, Sean, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. I know we know you as the magician, but I think you should be called the salesman. Maybe the car salesman will be <laughs> a perfect nickname. Uh, I hope to see you back on the snooker circuit sooner rather than later. I'm sure we will. I'm sure this will all be over very soon. But in the meantime, thank you. Thanks for your time. It's been a real pleasure, Sean. Cheers. Stay safe. There you go. The wonderful Sean Murphy. Um, until next time, we'll see you soon. Bye bye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.